This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Today, the theme which needs to be addressed and has not been, in my opinion, in an objective, fair manner by individuals who are not affiliated with the special interest groups is the whole idea of the lies that we are told that we then don't know who to believe. We only find out their lies after the fact. And what can we do about it at that point? And what have we not been told about the unintended consequences of technologies, medical technologies, or anything else that may be affecting us a year or 10 years down the road? Because not everything reacts in the body immediately or even in the environment immediately. Right now, we're just seeing the forever chemicals that we've been exposed to. And they're in almost all the things we take for granted and use, like no-stick uh, no type of pots and pans, but now we know that that contributes to thyroid cancer. In any case, my guest today to talk about taking an honest look at our environment and what we have done, for example, like the mRNA vaccines, we were told they were safe and effective. Okay, let's just give them the benefit of a doubt that they hoped that they would be safe and effective, thought they were, but now we're saying that's not true. Well, now, from that, what can we then put together to fill in this puzzle that's just had so many missing pieces? And now, through Freedom of Information Act and through lawsuits, now they're forced to tell us the truth and give us documents. And we go, whoa, you knew about that? You kept that from the public? And then you have all these scientists who seem to align with you. Why? Then we take a look at these scientists. Many of them have received or are receiving research grants from governmental agencies, and they're not going to—they're not going to destroy their income flow. So they go along with things. But what if what they go along with is causing people to suffer injury or death? So there's a lot to discuss, and who better to have this discussion with than a person who may not consider himself an oracle, uh, but he is in his field, Dr. Robert Malone. He's an internationally recognized physician and scientist, and he also is an original inventor of the technology behind the mRNA vaccine delivery platform. His research is focused on gene delivery and formulations and vaccines. He has published 100 peer review papers and in, in the past served as a chairperson for the Department of Defense and the Department of Human Services committees. Dr. Malone has also worked with groups developing clinical trials on repurposed drugs targeting the SARS-2 virus. He's been a fierce outspoken critic of the government's COVID policies and the COVID vaccines and their gross conflicts of interest with private industry. He recently authored a new book, The Lies My Government Told Me and The Better Future Coming, which breaks down many of the lies the government has told us during the course of the COVID pandemic, three plus years and puts them into a larger economic and political context that the average layperson can understand. He received his medical degree from Northwestern University and was a global research scholar at Harvard Medical School, later working at the Salk Institute and teaching at several medical schools. He also is the founder of the Malone Institute, which is dedicated to returning integrity to government and the biological sciences and medicine. His website is robertwmalonemd.com. And Robert writes a newsletter that can be found on Substack under the Who is Robert Malone? Nice to have you with us today. Well, thanks a lot, Gary. Thanks for the chance to be here. And uh, thank you for your leadership over a long period of time in trying to help your listeners better understand the world that we live in and uh, the challenges that we all face in discerning truth and uh, facts in a postmodern environment in which uh, truth is become a victim of 
amazingly advanced propaganda technologies. Thank you. I noticed something, and tell me if I'm on target or not. Since our last interview, I believe that you've redirected some of your energy towards the bigger global picture, the world of global elites who operate through organizations like the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, Tavistock Institute, the Atlantic Council, Council on Foreign Relations, and others. And of course, these are the movers and shakers. These are the policymakers and opinion leaders who strategize and steer the course towards trends that are most profitable to them. And, uh, and it's a small sliver of the world population that benefit and always at the expense of everyone else, including our sovereignty and integrity as human beings. Our personal freedoms and even the exercise of free will is now more and more under their direction. What we can say, compelled speech, what we can do, the 15-minute cities. And yet, none of these people were elected. And we don't know who these people are until two years ago. Most people would never have heard of the World Economic Forum and knew that it was Davos, one and the same. And why do they feel they had the right to dictate our future? And unless, of course, people submit to being obedient servants to their agenda. They've also been smart enough to have these young global leaders, they call them. Vladimir Putin was one, Trudeau was one, Obama was one, the president of Argentina one. They have thousands of these individuals. In fact, it was Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum, who bragged on camera that uh, with Trudeau, it wasn't just Trudeau that he had influenced, but almost his entire cabinet. So having said that, one of my deeper concerns is our civilization's onward march to establish a metaphor, what Sir Thomas Huxley called the church scientific back in the mid-19th century, calls for a reductionist scientific materialist society to replace religious faith. So when we heard Anthony Fauci identifying himself as the science, this is ushering a regime based upon science rather than universal ethics and morals or even free will and free thought. We might remember that many of the most ardent skeptic atheists, such as Sam Harris, uh, uh, Jerry Coyne, P.Z. Meyer, Steve Novella, and others, who already uh, are largely neuroscientists and evolutionary biologists, don't believe in free will. In other words, this ideology claims we are little more than automatons, and that a worldview can open up the floodgates to unimaginable atrocities, in my opinion. So as a scientist and medical doctor, and one who is more than an accumulation of a lifetime of knowledge, but one who has innate wisdom to guide that knowledge that others do not always possess or use, what is happening to your profession? And what are you witnessing especially the flaws in modern medicine and public health sciences that can adversely affect people who simply have blind trust? And is this new science becoming the dominant religion? And what is the major Achilles heel in this materialistic worldview? Please take your time. The form is yours. Well, there was about 20 different uh, threads that we could have run down in that intro that you just gave us, uh, each of which could easily take us an hour. Uh, so I'll try to stay higher level. The core question you ask in conclusion is what's happened to the medical profession? And this is multifactorial. Remember that the medical profession, quote unquote, which is really a guild, uh, is not monomorphic. It's not a single entity. It is somewhat decentralized, but has increasingly become centralized due to a number of forces. And uh, one of those are the health care reforms that we call Obamacare in generically. But there are other forces that go back to, for instance, the legislation that was largely driven by Senator Edward Kennedy, among others, that uh, really empowered the modern pharmaceutical industrial complex by enabling 
uh, access to marketing or propaganda capabilities through corporate media, particularly television, that are proscribed, in other words, are not allowed in most uh, Western states. The United States is almost alone in allowing this type of marketing of pharmaceuticals. What that did was, together with the decision by the U.S. government to not negotiate on price for patented drugs, is to let loose a truly a monster, an economic engine that produced massive, massive profits. Now, this was all justified under the logic that uh, research and development is extremely expensive. And so it was justified to have uh, these very high profit margins from patented drugs because the pharmaceutical industry only had a limited time to recoup their uh, supposedly enormous uh, investments in uh, developing a breakthrough new agents was basically the pitch of, uh, fronted by the pharma organization and other lobbyist groups. The consequences were that uh, an enormous amount of wealth was generated in the context of what I assert is really the postmodern golden rule, that being those of the gold make the rules. And so we had this enormous profit engine with, an, with incredible amounts of wealth being generated um, flowing into pharma and then up into the investor class that sits behind all of this and really integrates all industries. Now we have, at this point in time, we have BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, Bank of America, all with interlaced ownership so that they're really functionally one entity. Uh, but BlackRock alone is on track and just about there to control well north of 90% of all corporations in the United States. So when we talk about the pharmaceutical industrial complex and we talk about corporate media and we talk about finance, et cetera, we think of those as separate industries with their own industrial players, but in fact, they are functionally divisions of the same company uh, under the umbrella of these large investment groups that are so large that they basically can tell nation states uh, what their policies shall be. So the autonomy of uh, and the sovereignty of nation states in the modern financial environment is compromised. They, they really don't have much latitude. This is particularly true in Europe, where the uh, central banks in Brussels have uh, the European nation states, EU member countries, are so indebted to the central banks and the big uh, banking conglomerates within Europe that they have almost no political operational latitude. This is why they focus on, for instance, social justice issues and other social issues is because they don't have any operational latitude to focus on larger economic things. Back here stateside, what's happened is that this uh, massive amount of wealth that's been generated has been then plowed back into the system in various ways to influence the behavior of uh, the, the guilds uh, and the sub-guilds, for instance, within medicine, we have all of these organizations that manage uh, specialty boards. And so we have uh, major uh, contributions, not only to the American Medical Association, which uh, relatively few physicians belong to and really no longer has credibility as the overarching uh, representative of the interests of practicing physicians, rather it has absolutely been co-opted by a large uh, financial and pharmaceutical interests. But that flows down to the American Pediatrics Association, etc. All of these sub uh, guilds that uh, uh, defend their own specialty territory and uh, require that physicians basically tow party lines uh, associated with what the guild has determined to be best practices. Layered on top of that, because this is really what we have is our layers on tops of layers on top of layers of control mechanisms. 
Um, one of them is that in parallel, pharma has captured virtually all of the large uh, um, peer-reviewed publications, the ones that are considered to be the most legitimate. And uh, they do this through a variety of different mechanisms, largely financial. In many cases, they can't advertise. And so one of their tricks is that they uh, purchase large numbers of copies of journal uh, editions that print editions that have articles favorable to their products, this particular drug or that particular drug. So they finance the performance of the studies and then they facilitate those studies being published in high profile journals. And then they incentivize the high profile journals financially by basically subsidizing them indirectly, not through advertising. Uh, to publish that information, which is uh, favorable to their interests. And then that cycles back into the medical industrial complex because physicians base their medical practice decisions typically on what is published in those high profile journals. Then in parallel, you have the consolidation of the uh, hospital system. So once upon a time we had a diverse decentralized array of hospital systems that were typically community-based, in some cases uh, associated with various uh, religious uh, organizations, uh, Catholic Church notably, and, and as well as many others. And uh, so they there, there was these nonprofit hospitals as well as for-profit hospitals, but the nonprofit hospitals were typically associated with some uh, non-governmental organization, often religious-based. The money kind of got squeezed out of that down to a point where in order to make a, to maintain economic viability of a community hospital, one really had a hospital administrator and their ownership were forced into a position where they had to join these large uh, uh, conglomerates uh, that, uh, we, we call healthcare management or maintenance organizations and, and other allied types of affiliations. Often those were built around a high status university uh, that could uh, lend its moniker to the system and thereby legitimize it. And uh, those organizations, as they coalesced, uh, in an environment in which it became increasingly impractical for uh, independent physicians to maintain the burden of documentation and paperwork and compliance with federal regulations. They, most uh, community practicing physicians found themselves in the place where they really couldn't keep up with all the paperwork that was demanding so much of their time they had less and less available to practice or they had, had to hire a significant amount of overhead staff to maintain compliance. And so uh, into this environment uh, came these large uh, conglomerate healthcare organizations, quote unquote, uh, typically backed by large investment banks and other uh, uh, investor organizations. And so that, that basically the hospital chains got converted into yet another uh, investment vehicle. And uh, these investment vehicle consortia then aggressively sought to uh, consolidate and capture their local competition in the form of uh, practicing physicians, independent physicians. So on one side, the physicians were squeezed and other medical care providers by the burdens of uh, free living in a highly regulated environment. Uh, free operations. And on the other side, the uh, hospital networks and their investors uh, engaged in a rather predatory practice of uh, consolidation of their competition regionally. And so these independent physicians were faced with a decision to try to maintain their practice in the face of these costs and, and regulatory burdens or to just sell out and go buy a Porsche and a house on the coast or lake or whatever their particular predilection was. And uh, on an individual basis, this became a fairly straightforward decision, take the money and run. 
And so what happened was they then get absorbed into these large hospitals, really it's monopolistic hospital systems that are set up. And at that point, they find themselves in a situation where they have to comport with the guidance that comes down, uh, you know, in large part originally from the large insurance consortiums that are allied with these large hospital consortiums and capitalizing them. In some cases, there's direct financial links. And then uh, the hospital systems themselves, because they have a group of financial drivers having to do with compliance, avoidance of litigation costs, et cetera, they found that it was most effective to begin uh, enforcing the practice of medicine based on checklists or policies. So that uh, the idea of the uh, basically uh, investigational, uh, wise, experienced uh, local doc that you would go to that's familiar with your culture, your environment, uh, what infectious disease is spreading, uh, those kinds of things. That person is now absorbed into a hospital system that insists on a protocol driven medicine because if you stay within the protocol, then you can minimize the risk of litigation costs. You know, I was just doing what uh, standard of care is uh, and I wasn't exercising free will and going independent. And so if something bad happened, well, I was doing my job, doing what I'm told to do, following the rules and regulations, and I can't be held legally liable because I wasn't straying from uh, the uh, um, practice of medicine as, as practiced in my regional area. This is one of the things that's uh, um, kind of odd about a standard of care law is that it's regional so that these large hospital consortia by their very existence and by propagating these protocols can establish standard of care for a given region and then exclude the risk of uh, legal consequences should there be uh, adverse events associated with that practice because they functionally are the standard of care because they control that community. So we have this interleaved uh, system, and then that has now been um, turned onto the medical schools. And so we now have a situation where the medical schools are no longer teaching independent thought in the same way that they did back for my age cohort and earlier age cohorts of physicians. Uh, with the onset of these uh, large federal uh, um, uh, aggregator laws that uh, um, uh, streamline and harmonize the practice of medicine and its compensation together with the influence of these uh, large insurance uh, consortia, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, which finds it very convenient to have a protocol-based medicine, particularly if they get their particular patented drugs on that protocol, uh, and uh, the um, the hospital systems, basically you have a consortium that has evolved between hospital systems, uh, the federal government, which by the way, constitutionally is not supposed to be regulating the practice of medicine. That, that clearly is uh, a, a right in practice uh, assigned to the states, uh, but the feds have, have used the repatriation of tax dollars, et cetera, to essentially incentivize or compel states to comply with uh, the edicts that are coming from the federal government, both ensure in, in, in force of these uh, policies and practices involving compensation and practice of medicine, uh, as well as through uh, any edicts that originate from the kind of anointed experts within health and human services uh, and you mentioned Mr. Fauci as a notable example of that, but we've seen many others, for instance, Rochelle Walensky, Deborah Burks, we could go down the line of people that uh, have absolutely propagated mis, dis, and malinformation during the last three years. And that's amply documented. As you cited, one of the most egregious examples is the hiding of information that was known to the government and to the uh, uh, office of the president 
concerning the risks of uh, myocarditis, particularly dominant in younger men, including military recruits. Uh, um, so this was this is now documented, as you mentioned, through FOIA uh, to have been intentionally hidden by the government through the use of various withholding of information combined with propaganda and censorship uh, and really fifth generation warfare technologies of uh, modern psyops. So you have this interleaved, a uh, multi-layered uh, consortium that's evolved that con completely controls the uh, latitude of physicians to practice and is now actively training the next cohort of physicians to comply with not investigational medicine driven by individual initiative, insight, and uh, um, you know, in deduction, deductive reasoning, uh, but rather training these uh, young medical care providers to follow checklists. As if that wasn't enough, now the practice in medical schools is across the United States is that there's a screening test administered that has to do with uh, the candidate's awareness and integration of modern social uh, policy theory uh, one could call this wokeism, uh, but there's a number of other terms that could be applied having to do with uh, one's uh, integration into oneself of various uh, social engineering uh, theories and policies that are being promoted so that you you have to take this initial assessment, uh, a incoming student, and that's used as the screening tool to determine whether or not to proceed to evaluate other aspects of the candidate's uh, um, portfolio, such as achievements, grades, MCAT tests, et cetera. First, you have to pass through this uh, um, social uh, compliance, policy compliance test. So the whole system now is integrated in a way that it discourages free thinking and independence and uh, really uh, uh, inculcates uh, a, a way of being in the world that uh, in practicing medicine that is very convenient for these large uh, financial interests. And as if that isn't enough, uh, these poor souls here in the United States, as opposed to say most offshore nations, from whence the uh, foreign medical graduate uh, pool is pulled, um, where often their training is subsidized. Here in the States, uh, to get through medical school, one typically accrues uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. So virtually another mortgage at higher interest rates because it's not secured is uh, required to get through this unless of course you're uh, extremely wealthy and uh, have have a financial backer, whether it's your parents or whomever. Uh, so that as one emerges from this training program, uh, having already completed a bachelor's degree typically, so that's four years, then you get four years of medical school, then you have four years of uh, one year of internship and three to six years of residency, uh, all at uh, basically uh, um, entry-level pay scale, uh, at which point and during which time you have to start paying off this massive mortgage. Uh, and the consequence is that these emerging physicians, and they're now in their 30s and 40s that have been through this, and I personally just paid off my uh, medical school debt uh, in my 50s, for example, uh, they are wearing golden handcuffs. They, they can't afford to speak out against uh, what they may see as unethical practices or inappropriate management decisions because they would be terminated. And if terminated uh, with cause from one of these hospital systems, you functionally become unemployable. So you don't have to have your medical license pulled, which is another practice now that is being actively weaponized. Uh, for those physicians or medical care providers, nurses, et cetera, that 
that do not uh, go along with the narrative and speak out, uh, there's aggressive campaigns to uh, withdraw their specialty board certification by those sub guilds that I was talking about, um, or uh, have their medical licenses pulled. I experienced this myself uh, from a very aggressive uh, physician who doesn't practice, who lives on the island of Maui, who attempted to get my license taken by the medical board in Maryland under the thesis that I was a mass murderer because I have spoken out against the vaccines. Uh, but uh, in in my case, uh, I was, you know, this landed right before Christmas two winters ago, and I was able to uh, fight it successfully and maintain my license in the state of Maryland. But many other physicians have completely lost the ability to practice medicine. And in Canada, the allied system uh, requires that physicians that have transgressed, uh, not just Jordan Peterson, but average docs that have uh, um, had the temerity, for instance, to uh, treat COVID with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, for example, with early treatment, they're being forced to go to literally re-education camps at their own expense, at the end of which they have to write a uh, essay documenting their uh, personal acceptance of their guilt. This is very Soviet. Uh, their personal acceptance of their guilt for their uh, misdeeds and uh, indicate that how contrite they are and how they have reformed their opinions to align with the uh, required practices of their uh, medical uh, region in in Canada, it's, it's regulated geographically. Uh, and um, if they don't uh, write a sufficiently uh, appropriate uh, letter of contrition, then they are required to go back and retake the coursework at their own expense again. This is like six or seven thousand bucks a run. Uh, and their licensors typically suspended. They're not able to practice medicine until they can complete the uh, um, retraining or re-education process to the point that the those that are overseeing it uh, have decided that um, they they have met the criteria for being sufficiently contrite. Many are also, even in the United States, um, being required to uh, be subjected to psychiatric analysis uh, for their um, failure to uh, comply with the uh, norms uh, of, of their local medical community uh, uh, for if they are uh, prescribing uh, early treatment in the case of COVID or other transgressions. This is unheard of historically. Uh, throughout my career, the only people that ever lost their license were ones that had really egregiously violated uh, uh, basically uh, community ethical standards, such as uh, repeated violations of sexual transgressions with patients, uh, in uh, in rare cases, uh, over prescription of opioids, usually that was just kind of a, a slap on the hand, and uh, and you had to maybe take some remedial coursework about the risks of addiction. Uh, you know, the the people that uh, had uh, moral turpitude uh, complaints, such as the sexual transgression issue with patients, or uh, alcohol or drug abuse uh, typically would have to go through some uh, uh, program uh, like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and successfully complete that. And you might be suspended for a period while this is happening, but uh, rarely were uh, medical licenses pulled. So all of this has been now weaponized in a political sphere um, having to do with compliance uh, with uh, um, public policy and uh, normative behaviors. So that's that's the integrated process that has resulted in, in a medical system that um, from soup to nuts 
is compromised and has completely lost its independence and has been captured by uh, large financial interests and in particular by this hyper aggressive pharmaceutical industry that functionally sees uh, recognizes no moral boundaries. Uh, they are they are entirely driven by profit motive, and anything that will increase profit um, is basically treated as a catch me if you can situation. I hope I've answered your question. It's a big, complex problem. Good insight into the nature of that problem. Um, I'm going to give you a little experience from my own background because in 1972, I met with virtually all of the physicians, all board certified in their fields, neurology and, and gastroenterology, psychiatry, cardiology, who were practicing at that time the innovations within complementary or what was called alternative medicine. To a person, they were all attacked. The state medical boards were going after all their licenses. And uh, I was getting calls because as also an investigative journalist, I was able to look into it and see if I could help them. I helped Stanislav Brzezinski uh, get the state local board office back. In fact, that led to a 2020 special that won two Emmys and also Dr. Lawrence Burton in the Bahamas. That led to a 60 Minutes piece on Dr. Lawrence Burton. And then the spotlight was on these people, the, the bureaucrats, technocrats, and they backed off. But to a person, not one of the 58 people in all of America, that was it, practicing alternative medicine, was free to practice. And no one looked at, are you actually helping your patients? Because the only reason these people said they were using alternative medicine because much of what they've been taught through their orthodox models and protocols were not working. So they wanted to try something that they felt would be better and they were getting good results. And also, in the early 1970s, um, a person dropped off an envelope at my um, apartment, and it was, to this day I don't know who it was, um, and I opened it up and it was a series of documents from inside the AMA headquarters. But specifically, it showed that there was a secret department of investigations that had been going on for 25 years, and it was headed by a lawyer, and their whole goal was to stop, to cause to wither and die on the vine, their words, the entire field of alternative medicine, and specifically their biggest competition, ironically, was chiropractic. And so they wanted to discredit chiropractic, and they did. They called it an unscientific cult. So you as a physician, if you want the same good standings, you couldn't recommend a patient or refer a patient or accept a patient from a chiropractic. They couldn't go to the same classes and learn the same science. So I wrote up a series of articles and they were published in Caveat Emptor. At the same time, Ralph Nader and I were writing articles for Caveat Emptor. That was the, the best alternative publication in the country to expose corruption. It was like a whistleblower uh, investigative journal. Well, that led to some chiropractors suing the 12 largest medical organizations and the AMA, and when it cleared up the Supreme Court, and the AMA lost and had to recognize for the first time chiropractic was a legitimate field and start uh, taking their wrath away from them, and it grew from there. But that just shows you uh, and, and whoever's listening and watching that we've had an ongoing campaign since the Flexner Report, since the most powerful person who created the pharmaceutical industry in the United States was Rockefeller Sr., and he yes. created the Flexner Report, and they can created the protocols, so they control the protocols. They created the American Cancer and, and the And the medical school. Yes, so they control everything, and they control the state medical boards. So now what you're seeing today, and you didn't see this it's from the 1970s on, because we actually got a law passed in New York State that then was replicated across the country, that as long as a physician was informing the patient of all the possible risks, they could engage in whatever therapy, yep. chelation therapy, consent. without informed consent. So we worked hard at that. I was the one who led that charge. And so we protected the doctors who wanted to try this. And now we have thousands of doctors using complementary medicine along with their orthodox practice. Now, I want you to focus on one issue in particular because let's just say, as I said at the beginning, we're going to get people the benefit of a doubt. 
the people within. I really uh, like that approach. Um, uh, it, it doesn't serve any of us well to constantly obsess about uh, theories based on the thesis that uh, this is all um, nefarious intent uh, or some dark uh, demonic objective. It doesn't help I, us get through. As a journalist, aside from what else I do, I don't ever start off with a presupposed conclusion. Whatever the evidence presents that can be independently confirmed as factual, that leads then to the conclusion. So you and I are aligned. Um, just the facts, man. Stick to the documents that's, uh, we can observe. But what I saw that contradicted that from the other side, from the mainstream media, including highly respected publications like New York Times, Washington Post, is they were convicting doctors in public opinion for trying some therapies FDA-approved off-label drugs, like azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, and also some nutrients like vitamin C, D3, zinc. And uh, they were Steroids. saying that this was all quackery. And not only that, they went one step further. And this is where it gets tricky. It's one thing to say, I disagree with you on that, and have a civil but interesting debate, like uh, William F. Buckley used to do with some of the leading, like John Kenneth Galbraith and, and some of the people used to debate. You could take one side, the other, or neither, but at least it was a civil debate and you could hear both sides. This was not a debate. This was immediately an inquisition. So any physician, including all of those 75,000 originally signed the Great Barrington Declaration, challenging different parts of the uh, COVID narrative, especially the you know, uh, quarantine, yeah. they were all attacked not just one, and they weren't brought on to debate. No one said, here we have Anthony no, Fauci this, or Walensky. This was, this was concerted deployment of advanced uh, psychological warfare technology designed for offshore combat on the citizenry of the United States. That's why our book that we're working on right now is about war and sovereignty. Um, I, want, I want you to go further into this. Of, the power of modern technology to control everything that you encounter as information, everything you think, you feel, and you believe is profound. Let me share just the hypothesis, and then, if you would please, bring that into your own research. In any case, so when I started seeing people attacked for suggesting that their clinical experience was that patients didn't get sick or sicker you need hospitalization or die when they if they were early treated with a certain combination of drugs and i'll just select one ivermectin and those people were to a person attacked at no point did i see and i called all these people and i said did anyone actually interview you anyone from the new york times and ask could you prove that you treated these patients your 1200 patients 700 patients in one case 20,000 patients at one clinic and no one died. No one asked that question. So how can you say that someone is engaged in deadly medicine should have their license revoked and the state boards went after all these people's boards or licenses and there was no, there was no court, there was no evidence presented. So I decided to do this. I want to see how long would it take me to find evidence that could challenge the prevailing view that ivermectin was nothing more than horse pace. Within yes. three weeks, I had over, well, at this point, 3,350 total studies on FDA-approved off-label drugs that had been shown both in clinical trials, in peer-reviewed literature, over 99 studies just on ivermectin, and, uh, and that were published in res by respected institutions and scientists and it was a 404-page article citing only facts that here's, here's what was used, here's the clinics and people that use them, here's their proof, here's all the journals. I cited the journals, I cited all the studies, I cited the charts, what percentage of people were not hospitalized or went to hospital but weren't, didn't die as a percentage if they would have taken this. And my conclusion was, 
based upon the evidence that if we had universally used a combination of traditional drugs um, and nutrients early on, we could have saved upwards. Evidence is there. All you have to do is find it, and you're educated. You're, you're qualified at the New York Times or the Washington Post or MSNBC. You've got all the resources in the world. You've got all the government resources. You can contact anyone at the FDA, CDC, World Health Organization with one phone call. Why is it that you didn't choose to find any of this? So then we go from, okay, you know, let's just see that maybe we're just experiencing some unintended consequences that nobody knew was going to happen. Uh, but then we have to ask, why would you prevent and then attack and want to destroy doctors who were using something that was actually working? And that's when then I began to pull back and see that there were other agendas with many of the people involved in the COVID debacle. Could you take it from there, please? Uh, so you focused on ivermectin as kind of a case study, uh, and that's a good place to start. There's so many different ways to approach uh, what we've all experienced uh, over the last, you know, heading on four years. Uh, and in ivermectin, the ivermectin story is a good initial portal to enter into this uh, matrix of uh, propaganda, psyops, and the associated uh, definitions promulgated by uh, Department of Homeland Security uh, concerning mis-, dis-, and malinformation, which Homeland Security defines as domestic terrorism. So that's something you didn't touch on, is that all of this has been cloaked in the language and logic of uh, the terrorism laws and uh, the authority that those grant to the administrative state to act in these overbearing unilateral fashions. Uh, this, this also is a complex, multi-layered phenomena that you're touching on here. Uh, I can share a couple of personal anecdotes. Um, I work closely with uh, Defense Threat Reduction Agency because I had colleagues there in, in seeking to repurpose drugs uh, for the COVID crisis and captured literally hundreds of millions of dollars for clients uh, that I was supporting to advance this discovery and identification characterization of repurposed drugs. And I'm not going to embarrass uh, the contractors who are my clients with whom I have signed non-disclosure agreements, but uh, suffice to say this was a major thrust uh, for myself and my colleagues uh, through uh, 2020 and 2021, most of 2021 until I began speaking out about my concerns uh, regarding the vaccine product, quote, vaccine mRNA and other uh, genetic-based vaccine products, and the failure to provide informed consent, at which point, basically, I destroyed all those interpersonal relationships and uh, um, contacts and, and other alliances. However, before all that happened, uh, just to give one little data point, I was uh, detailed by Defense Threat Reduction Agency within DOD, Chem Biodefense Group, to uh, participate as a non-voting member in the active uh, clinical trials uh, process funded by the Foundation for NIH. Uh, so it was a proceeding under the umbrella of the NIH, but what the government did in its wisdom uh, years ago is to enable uh, two key nonprofits, the Foundation for NIH and the Foundation for CDC, which allowed the Gates Foundation and Pharma to make major donations to these two government organizations, and through those donations direct how those government organizations would proceed on various issues. And so in sitting in the active committee uh, um, on, a, on a weekly basis, uh, basically being able to comment but not vote and bring back what I was learning about what NIH was doing back into the DOD intellectual space. 
Uh, I encountered, uh, for instance, a representative from Merck uh, who uh, very actively sought to dissuade the foundation for NIH and the active trials from uh, testing ivermectin on the basis only that they asserted this propaganda that you're mentioning. I also, uh, together with my team, identified the uh, repurposed drug combination first of famotidine, that's Pepsid, which has now clearly been proven to be effective and safe, but you have to administer it a higher dose than for gastroesophageal reflux. And this has to roll, do with the role of mast cells in the COVID disease. Uh, and then also celecoxib, that's an anti-inflammatory drug that was identified as highly potent by a, a Chinese team. And then we replicated their results and found that the combination was particularly potent, even in more advanced hospitalized COVID. And then uh, we added on as the momentum built ivermectin to that protocol, and it became extremely effective and potent. At which point the DOD capitalized to the tune of a couple hundred million dollars, a major clinical trials program that had both a uh, outpatient and an inpatient uh, component, very sophisticated clinical trial strategy, um, evidence-based, uh, patient-based uh, reports, um, uh, virtual trial structures. Uh, and we were, as a very seasoned, uh, you know, battle-hardened uh, group working for DOD of regulatory and clinical professionals uh, what we encountered is something that I've never, none of us encountered ever before. And these are, these are people with 20, 30, all of us had 20 or 30 years experience in the industry. The FDA uh, obfuscated our uh, um, IND packages repeatedly, uh, blocked them. And uh, this is, remember, this is DOD's uh, clinical trial advocacy and actions. It's a DOD team submitting these protocols to the FDA. And in the end, uh, we got the a determination by the FDA that they would not allow ivermectin to be used in any clinical trials by our group unless we proved in cell culture the mechanism of action of this licensed and proven safe drug that is on the WHO uh, list of essential medicines. Uh, and uh, so at that point, the Department of Defense made a determination that we would drop the ivermectin component from that trial because we were unable to get it through the FDA. And at that point, it had been almost nine months seeking allowance to proceed with the trials. Um, shortly thereafter, with that decision, so we, were, we uh, pulled ivermectin out of the protocol, uh, resubmitted an IND package. Uh, a couple months later, that was allowed to proceed. And at that point, Omicron had emerged. Uh, and uh, as I had mentioned on uh, um, a Fox program, uh, functionally, the Omicron strain of the virus, which was so highly infectious and relatively non-pathogenic, swept through the world, functionally acting as a transmissible infectious vaccine and yielded uh, 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 innate, or I should say, acquired, um, quote, natural immunity is the term that's applied. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with the term, but it's what everybody does, everybody says. So basically, everybody got uh, natural infection and associated natural immunity from Omicron, and it became uh, impossible functionally to enroll those clinical trials. And they failed because uh, we had delayed so long uh, through the more pathogenic phases of, of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections worldwide and got to the point where nobody wanted to, nobody trusted these clinical trials anymore. Certainly nobody wanted to enroll in them and uh, the trials failed for lack of enrollment. I also, uh, this is not, you know, I, I'm usually asked to talk about the jab and my background in the RNA vaccine technology and help people to understand that technology and understand the adverse events. Uh, and then increasingly, I speak about the propaganda technologies that have been deployed. Rarely, if ever, am I asked to speak about our work in repurposing drugs. Uh, 
through this period up until I basically got delegitimized in an organized campaign by corporate media um, and taken out of the ability to engage in any a meaningful way in the public discourse. Uh, I had worked with two uh, senior academics, full professors in, out of Spain to launch a uh, volume, a special edition of Frontiers in Pharmacology focused on drug repurposing because it was wickedly difficult to get any drug repurposing manuscripts published. Uh, and um, among the manuscripts, so I was functioning as one of the senior editors for this volume, soliciting manuscripts. Second, please, J just hold your thoughts for one second because we want to say goodbye to our WBA audience. We're continuing to top the hour on PRN.live. Please continue. We have four minutes to go. So in that case, uh, I solicited the manuscript from Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick and the FLCCC consortium. Uh, that was the first large uh, compendium academically of, uh, as you mentioned, the many, many studies concerning ivermectin. We got that uh, through a rigorous peer review process uh, with um, uh, highly seasoned, uh, including senior FDA uh, personnel as reviewers. And uh, the abstract was published. Uh, the FLCCC and Pierre Corey paid the fee for publication. It was put up as an abstract by Frontiers. It got one of the highest viewerships as an abstract ever. And then I got a call from the editor-in-chief of Frontiers saying that we had to withdraw the manuscript because there had been a complaint. He wouldn't tell me who was complaining. Uh, and uh, in the end, then they retroactively began reviewing other papers that were in the pipeline, including my own for that journal, and uh, knocking those out for spurious reasons. And uh, the uh, those that had uh, organized this new edition resigned in mass uh, with a protest letter that was covered in the uh, um, London-based journal, The New Scientist. Uh, and so uh, that's another case of where ivermectin got killed. What we've had is a concerted, it's clearly a concerted propaganda campaign uh, to suppress availability of early treatment uh, throughout the United States and the world. And uh, it, it, again, is probably multi-layered in terms of causality. I, I can't get inside of Tony Fauci's head or, or anybody else's or, or um, the leadership at FDA. But one of the uh, elements that appear to have underpinned this is emergency use authorization terms, which required that there be no viable alternative uh, treatment for a emergency disease in order to justify applying emergency use authorization terms to uh, patented drugs or new investigational agents like remdesivir, uh, the monoclonal antibody products, or of course the uh, genetic vaccines. Uh, there probably, in addition to that, were financial incentives uh, for this, and as well as various organizational ones. Remembering that Peter Marks, who was in charge at the FDA for the vaccine products, is the one that created Operation Warp Speed and has been a great advocate uh, for that process. So he basically has been a stakeholder. It's also important to remember that the FDA functionally under EUA acts as both the sponsor of the products as well as the regulator. So they're sitting on both sides of the table, which is another thing that's led to a lot of the perverse uh, actions that have been taken. Let me just conclude by saying that, that I'm going to invite you back because I want to deal with the personal side of this. When I read the New York Times front page story where you and 11 other individuals had been attacked, I was appalled. And I wrote the New York Times to say that, why don't you have him on to debate? I don't see him being given a forum to challenge you. In any case, there's a lot more I want to talk about. Um, and so at your convenience, we'll do it again. But now, for the first time, a lot of what we were told and, and propagandized is showing that they knew at that time 
that they had problems with the vaccines, the side effects, myocarditis, etc., and reproductive health, and they kept it from the public. And for that, that is intentional. That is malice. Absolutely. And we also now have uh, pretty clear evidence of adulteration and of obfuscation of that adulteration. In other words, the vaccine products are not pure, and that uh, the regulatory authorities and the pharmaceutical sponsors have been aware of this. This appears to constitute fraud, which potentially would pierce the indemnification veil that has protected all of these yeah. various acts. The government's sovereignty rule. The government's sovereignty rule only applies if it's proven you have not committed a crime, knowingly committed a crime. If you do, you're not protected. Those will be in our next discussion. Dr. Robert Malone, website robertwmalonemd.com. And who is Robert Malone at substack.com. Thank you very much for being with us and thank all of you for watching. Please share the information if you find it of value. Have a nice day. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you die.